Achtung, Panzer, Werfahrt! Ladies and gentlemen, how are we tonight? This is Paul speaking. And this is Bruce. Welcome back to the living room. Hello. Bonjour, monsieur. <laughs> and tonight we have a, a beautiful French tank tonight. What have we got, Bruce? Tonight, the Shah B1. Beautiful. <laughs> breakthrough vehicle originally conceived as a self-propelled gun with a 75 millimeter howitzer in the hull and actually if you look at the thing mm -hmm. it looks very much like a self-propelled gun with a with a like, with an add-on you, you know that tank in um game of um game of thrones uh, <laughs> world, world of, of tanks. tanks and it was that pissy one that everybody hates that that tank destroyer yeah with a dirty great gun on it. it looks like a, that's the one yes yeah so it's basically uh, a a B without the turret. Yeah. Well, the original con concept was basically a Sturmgeschütz with a. Yes. Yes. And then they stuck they stuck a um, a, a forty seven millimeter turret on top. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think about that, how how that came about. I mean, you um, it's a bit like um, actually our next tank, which is the Grant. Oh, I hated that tank when I was oh, a Yeah, but again, a seventy five mil on the hull and mm. a small one on the top. Yep. Interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. So it was. Look, it was. It was the the forty seven mil was added to allow it to um to function as a a shawty battle. Beautifully said, Bruce. Oh, <laughs> awful. You've been practicing um, that one. A battle now. tank, so fighting enemy armor. So a forty seven mil against enemy armor. I suppose in the thirties, that would have been sufficient because there really wasn't anything that um that we know came later. Well, that's right. I mean, let's let's look at some of the tanks it was up against. You had. The pans are what? Well, the, what the French knew that was yeah, but they didn't know what the Germans that's, had. That's right. So, you know, so all, the, all they knew was the Germans were driving around with cardboard cutouts. Uh, no, not quite. Uh, look, I'm actually reading a book at the moment mm. called um, "Cry Havoc" by Joseph uh, Maiolo. Yep. And it's about how the arms race drove um, drove the world to war between 1931 and 1941. Okay. And in his book, Joseph talks about. Um, the actual um, how they, they were, all these countries were gearing towards total war. So Russia, Britain, yep. France, Germany, Italy, mm. Japan. So the two big players early on were basically Russia and Japan. So Japan was actually in in China in Manchuria, and they'd yep. taken some stuff there. And so Russia was gearing up to actually fight it. But the benchmark army, the benchmark army in the 30s was the French. Mm. And they were, by a fair way, they were actually the, the benchmark army. So yep. I, don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am in this case. Nobody expected the results of the French campaign. Even the Germans didn't expect it. Well, I mean, I love what they did. Mm. I mean, it's not great, but I mean, I it's, love the way, they, the way they did it. I love the way they did it. It's spectacular, isn't it? It is spectacular. But yes. they, they got, they <laughs> were lucky. Mm. In some instances, mm. their their strategy was 
far, far better than the French and the yep. British. I'm yep. very sorry if you're listening from Britain, but it's it's true. They, I mean, but that evened itself out later on. Mm. So, um, but the the Shah B was was basically um, it was a movable object. It was a, was a was basically a pillbox that yep. you know run in and yep. I know that a I relocatable pillbox. Yeah, and yeah. this this some. There's some um, there's some dialogue here from um, Heinz Guderian that we can talk about later. Um, that it was they are they are really brutal things, mm. but their Achilles' heel was the fact that they were um, they were slow, and their range they only had a 200 kilometer range. Now the original tender was put out in I think 21, wasn't it? Like when the French first put out the tender. Yeah. Um, to, and so it would have been informed with the requirements directly out of the First World War. Yeah, that's to, right. To which this tank is perfect. Absolutely. Yes. It would have, would have done great service. Mm. So, I mean, the production history was 1921 yep. to 1934, mm. but it wasn't in service until 1936. So it's a, it's a very interesting thing. So, But it was among the most powerfully armed and armoured um, armoured tanks of its day and it was very effective in direct confrontations with German armour in 1940 yep. um, during the Battle of France but slow speed and high fuel consumption made it ill-adapted to the war of movement mm. uh, then being fought so the Germans just went round them yes yep. um, it's like it's like the Germans fighting Matildas yep. and they they just basically outmaneuvered them an elephant surrounded by mosquitoes yeah that's mm. it that's yep. it yeah so after the defeat of France, um, captured uh, Char B1s would be used by Germany uh, with some rebuilt as uh, flamethrowers, my personal favourite, um, munitions panzers and or mechanised artillery. So they used them as um, mechanised... Um, can, can I just jump in quickly there? Sure. Uh, you know how you were talking about the frogs, the Matilda frogs last week? And yeah. um, <laughs> apparently there's one down in Puckapunya which we'll have to get down there and have Ooh. a bit of a look at. So I just that's just a side note. So we'll we'll uh, go and investigate that. So the people overseas, Puckapunyal's an army base about two hours south yeah. of where we live. Yes, yes, that's where the old um, Australian Tank Regiment used to live, but they've moved north now. Although that's a classified secret, isn't it? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> all right. So, all right. How about we move on? I'm ready. Oh, good. <laughs> That's why you were just looking at me. Oh, I was just looking at you. You're the one with the piece of paper, oh. Bruce. <laughs> okay. As you can see, I come unprepared. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The Shah B1 had its origins in the concept of Shah de Batille, as we talked about before, conceived by General Jean-Baptiste yep. Eugénie Estienne. And we've talked about him before. Yes, he keeps cropping up, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He's, he's a clever fellow. Yeah, so this, this, this was conceived by him in 1919. Yep. Okay. Um, so uh, it had to be a battle tank that could be able to accomplish uh, a breakthrough of the enemy line by destroying fortifications, gun emplacements and opposing tanks. So again, First World War thinking, yep. isn't it? Um, in January 1921, a commission headed by General Edmund Buat initiated a project for such a vehicle. To limit costs, it had to be built like a self-propelled gun um, with the main weapon in the hull. To minimise the vehicle size, this gun should be able to move only up and down. So to actually traverse the gun, you mm. have to traverse the tank. 
Now, much like the Swedish S team. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You may not know this because I've only really just found out about this the other night. Go. Was it able to? I no. I, I just remembered. I think the Churchill was the first one to be able to do a neutral turn. Do you know what I mean by a neutral turn? So is that sp- only spinning one track? No, no, no. It's being able to spin both tracks at the same time so it can completely pivot on one position ah. rather than dragging. Because if you just have one track sitting still and the other track moving forward, it will actually move out of its position as it rotates around sort of thing. So it can't, it, it can't rotate on its centre of gravity. Whereas a neutral turn, it turns from the centre of the tank. Like a pivot. Yep. That's interesting. Mm. And I just remember the Churchill was the first one to be able to do that. Hmm. Mm. I thought this might have been able to, because the French come up with some very interesting, they always do, don't they? They they come up with weird and wonderful stuff, and some of it works and some of it (coughs) really doesn't, you know, (laughs) spectacularly. Listen, Pierre. Yeah. (laughs) The French weren't Robinson Crusoe on that, as as you will probably see later on down Mm. the track. Anyway, let's just move on with this. Yep. Um, the specifications of the Shabu, well, this the tank included a maximum weight of 13 tons, a maximum maximum armor thickness of 25 millimeters. Now, I'm sorry, but that's so a maximum a max an inch, so an inch an inch of armor maximum on the front. Well, anywhere. Wow, I thought it was more heavily armored than that. It was. It is, but this is this was the the guidelines in nineteen ninety. Oh, okay, okay, or 1921. yes, and, and really the only thing that it had to defeat at that stage of the game was like hmm. um, fifty calibre uh, weaponry. Yeah, so the hull had to be as low as possible hmm. to enable the gun to fire into the vision slots of um, slits of bunkers. Yep. So they weren't really using it as a yes as anti armour. Um, a small machine gun turret to beat off enemy infantry attacks. Again, First World War. Yep. At the same time, serving as an observation post for the commander and a crew of at least three men. It really was a well thought out First World War tank. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Not for the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> Things didn't stand still. Yeah. Um, two versions should be built one, a close support tank armed with a 75mm howitzer, yep. the other, an anti tank vehicle with a 47mm gun instead. Mm. So they take the howitzer out and put a 47mm in. Let's talk about uh, tactical function. Yep. Okay. So the outer appearance of the Shah B reflected the fact that development started in the 20s. Mm-hmm. And we know that because mm-hmm. if you look at the, the First World War stuff, it's, it sort of mirrors that, I mm-hmm. guess. Slightly updated, but still yep. Yep. you would expect to see something like that at Verdun. <laughs> well, we did. Could you? you know, I was just thinking... <laughs> When I, was, I, I get into the First World War a fair bit, and I'm sorry to, to, to break your yeah. concentration on this, but had the war gone to 1919, the Germans were in a whole world of hurt because literally the Americans were coming into full focus, the British, they all had really almost like steampunk kind of um, capabilities coming online. And they were just... So the Germans didn't even get hit with what was coming. But 1919 was going to be a huge year. Yeah, um, and, and it never happened. And all of this stuff that we're talking about now, you know, this is like a direct descendant out of all of those thought bubbles that they were having. That's but, true. Mm, yeah, that's mm. true. So 
Would have been interesting to see whether the tank had it developed differently. Well, could you imagine the Char B on the First World War? Let's say the let's let's just play it out for a second and just say the Germans dug in. They never did that nineteen eighteen push uh, where they got stopped and they didn't expend their manpower and they decided to play it out for a bit longer. And so the the war went to you know nineteen twenty. Um, could you imagine like the Char B equivalent? out on the First World War uh, terrain, it would have been brutal. I'm just wondering whether they would have developed an anti-tank gun. Well, that's it. I mean, the Americans had come up with the 50 caliber machine gun, uh, which would have been devastating. Mm. Um, now, that would have punched through boilerplate. Not a problem in the world. Not a problem in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and... But the Germans had, at that stage of the game, to kill tanks. They they had developed the fifty caliber rifle, but that had been thrown away after. Yeah, well, mainly artillery. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, it was mainly artillery sort of thing, and then they were getting more and more high velocity stuff uh, up sort of thing. But the Germans were starting to get their heads around how to kill a tank. Yeah, um, but I mean, you you think about even like the tracks. The tracks went around the body, mm. like. Like a, you know... It's like, a First World War tank. Like, like a British Mark One. Yep, yep, yep. You know, it still had large tracks going around the entire hull and uh, <coughs> large armour plates it was protecting the suspension, so was, they had them on the side. It was designed to go across a wide yeah. trench emplacement. Yeah, and mm. I believe that, that there's a misnomer about... Um, I read somewhere... Uh, well, I, I've read a number of things on, on the Char B, but one thing was that they reckon that there was a vent on the side of the... The side of the actual, yes, okay, and they, and they reckon that that was its Achilles' heel, but not so. No, no. Not well, so. I, I look. I did. I was did a bit of research too, which is unlike me. Um, <laughs> and, and it was you, the radio. You've done your ten minutes of reading it's, this it, month. That's, yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. I pulled. I found, finally found my old reading glasses. Um, yeah. Look, apparently it was the radiator grill, and there's like a, a grill slit on, yeah. on, on the left hand side of the char B, about three quarters of the way along. Yeah. And they thought that it was going to be, but yes, as you said, it was heavily armoured. Yeah, yes. I know, but it wasn't that at all. No. I, and but I'm not sure. I'm, I know that. I know that, and we can talk about this in a sec. But I know that um, a bit like the, the Germans got a bit of a fright with it. As yes, they did, you would, you well, know, <laughs> as, as they did with a KV one when they met one of those over on over on the That's step. Right. But it was um, the the anti their anti tank guns that they had the Germans had wouldn't penetrate no but, but not at all Germans being what Germans being Germans they found a, a way to deal with it like I guess a little bit like Australians you know it may be unorthodox but they just rolled up their sleeves and they found a way of well being they, able to they bring they, these things to a halt they brought their artillery with them yeah. I mean they they moved quickly yep and they had their tanks were lighter but they they brought their artillery and well. Ring up a Stuka. Well, that's it. And, and their, their doctrine was just infinitely more flexible oh, well, than the French, who yeah. were still using... And I don't know if you're aware of this, but one of the big problems on the on the French battlefield was they were using telephones as their main form for uh, being able to talk to, from, the, from headquarters to the front line. Yeah. And they were using telephone lines because it was all interior stuff. Of course, the Germans had just come around, just killing every single... Kill everybody. You know, killing all the telephone lines as they're going sort of thing and, you know, knocking every phone pole they could find over. And, um, of course, then you've got the troops out the front with no idea of what's happening and what's going on. So their situational awareness has just dropped to, you know, uh, 
a, a very bad level. What's interesting is the French army mm. thought that dislodging the enemy from a key uh, front sector would decide a campaign. Got a bit of a shock. Yep. When um, Her Guderian and Her Rommel and and a number of others turned up and went, well, no. I mean, I mean, I mean, the Maginot line says it all. They yes. said that that was thought to actually the, stop the, the Germans cold. They were training for a slugging match. Well, they just thought that the Germans would yes. just stop. They, they, they would uh, break themselves against the Maginot line. Yep. You know, I mean, they had they had these. I mean, the French army was pretty good. Like they had they had a lot of tanks, a yep. lot, but they used them as mobile reserves. But the trouble was with the Shah B. It was too bloody slow. And, and not only that, they had a lot of problems with um, bringing up... Uh, see, a lot, a lot of people don't realise a lot of the Charbees were literally... It was almost Soviet in the way that they were bringing them off the, the production line and they were sticking you know, French recruits straight into them mm. and then, then sending them straight up to the front line. And, of course, they literally had no idea how to drive these things. I mean, you're, you're up against... Partially seasoned troops, like they, those troops have been through. They've been into Czechoslovakia. They've been mm. into, they've been well. They've been into Poland. Yep. And you had you had some of those guys have been training for years, mm. years. You know, so it's 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 interesting how it worked. I mean, the French thought they had them, and I know in in, um, in Cry Havoc they talk about you know um, the arms race. So if you had more stuff, yep. you were going to win. That's right. On paper, it looked like it was going to be a. But yeah. they didn't take into account tactics. They didn't take into account training. They didn't take into account, I guess, lines of supply. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. They didn't take into account the fact that there was a person called Rommel or Guderian. Oh. You know, I mean, the, these the, the generalship from the German uh, Wehrmacht and the Panzer Corps were, were excellent. They, they already had experience in Poland and, mm. you know, um, and also a lot of them had also had a bit of experience from the uh, you say Spanish was, Civil War. But would you say there was a bit of arrogance on the part of the French, maybe? Oh, I mean, the, look, no, the, French, the French are very proud people. I've, I've, been, yes. I've, been to, yes. I've been to France a couple of times and they're, they're very proud of their culture, they're very proud yep. of their country and right. I, I, I get that. Yep. But Now, I'm going to defend the French here. I'm not. Uh, I'm not knocking the French. No, 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 no. But like, let let's look at this fair in the face. There, there's a lot of talk about the um, the French campaign, and you know, you, you have the British. Yeah, but the thing is, the thing is, they prided themselves on being the only army in the world having uh, a sufficient number of adequately protected heavy tanks, and they did. Yes. The Germans didn't have those. No. I mean, the best they had was they had a few Panzer fours. Mm. And they were, I think they were short 75s on those. They weren't, they weren't the real penetrating ones they had later on. Now, the ones that had good crews in them, who were trained and were effective and had been using them for a fair while, they were devastating. Like, they tore the Germans to pieces. Like, when the tank is used effectively, it, it destroyed. Literally, there was nothing that could hold up against us as long as it was able to keep moving sort of thing. And, and this is it. They allowed themselves to get manoeuvred around... And, of course, you don't have to penetrate a tank to knock it out. You can take out a track or... Oh, you yeah. Can, you just... Yeah. You, know, you, you just have to ping away at it. And well, of course, just while you're on that, can I just read you something? Sure. Um, I've actually got this book at home. So um, yep. um, General Heinz Guderian actually wrote a book called uh, Panzer Leader, which okay. is it's an excellent book. Yep. So if you want to read a good book on, on um, panzer tactics and whatever, actually, that's a really good one to have. I've got it in my library. Um, Heinz Guderian related an incident which took place during a tank battle uh, south of Junieville. 
Um, while the tank battle was in progress, I attempted in vain to destroy a Shah B with a captured 47mm anti-tank gun. Right. Okay. All of the shells I fired at it simply bounced harmlessly off its thick armour. 47mm? Yep. Yeah. Our 37mm and 20mm guns were equally ineffective <laughs> against this adversary. Yep. As a result, we inevitably suffered, sadly, heavy casualties. Right. So he was firing a 47mm gun at this thing and it was just bouncing off. Yep. And, like, the man knows what he's doing. Absolutely. Nobody's going to argue that. So they were quite effective. They, they were. Um, but, like everything... If you've got an experienced crew who are sure of their equipment and they know what they're doing, they're going to be able to make a show of it. But if you don't, you know, um, you'll climb out of that tank and put your hands mm. in the air. Um, if particularly if a track goes out and you're under fire. Yeah, well, if you can't move, mm. and particularly if if your your primary armament's in the front of your tank and you can't actually. That, that's right. You, you can't, can't rotate. You can't, no. you can't rotate around. No. Um, the other thing the French thought was that the exploitation phase of a battle was seen as secondary. Right. Okay. And best carried out by controlled and methodical uh, movement to ensure superiority of numbers. So for the heavy tanks, also mo um, mobility was a secondary concern, not so the Germans, which they found out to their, their detriment. Mm. Um, although the Shah B1 had a reasonably good speed for its time of its uh, conception, no serious efforts were made to improve it when uh, much faster tanks appeared. Yep. So that's just about everything, yep. really. Well, I mean, I mean, the Panzer II just... It'd be Panzer like III go... Pan, Panzer, Panzer, Panzer II would run rings around it. Yep. Panzer III... Yep. It'd go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but it wouldn't defeat, wouldn't defeat its armour. No. I guess it depends on where you're shooting at it. Well, a Panzer III... And, and again, th this is the thing. With high-explosive ex um, rounds, and there was a fair few Panzer III's that had high-explosive guns on them. Um, they had the short 50s as well as the Panzer IVs. Yeah. Um, now, a high-explosive won't penetrate the main body of a tank, certainly of that, you know, that size and calibre. But it will blow off a track. You know, and this is, this is the thing. If, if you can't move your tank... And you can't rotate that dirty great 75 millimetre tank, uh, that, that, that cannon around onto the target. Mm. You're stuffed. All you've got is your 47 millimetre at the top. You know, it's, it's problematic. Yeah, but I guess you think about, you think about what's shooting at you. Mm. There's really nothing. I mean... Yeah, but you don't know. This is the fog of war here. So. You, you don't know. Like you're hearing bangs and crashes and everything hitting the side... You don't know when the next seconds. You know, you know what I mean. It'd be very wearing as a tank crewman to know whether or not the next bang is going to punch straight you, you through. You can't see. Yes, you can't see anyway. Yeah. That's why you've got supporting infantry. Yeah, yeah. But where, where were the supporting infantry, by the way? Um, were they supporting? I don't know. Like in the in the. Um, in the French campaign, were they, they from, they from were, what I've read, they they basically got got these brigades of tanks and just ran them forward, right? And they engaged because the Panzers were basically yep. racing across, you know, yep. racing across the countryside. These they they sent them out and they they engaged them on mass, right? I mean, from anything I've read, I mean, the German infantry was close behind, yep. And I'm guessing that the the, um, the Allied infantry would have been either dug in, dug in. I was I was looking at some uh, footage uh, 
of uh, on YouTube sort of thing, and they were doing an aerial shot, and they were looking over a battlefield, and there was about twenty five char bees out on the field. Yeah, and they all had. I would assume it would be Stuka bombs, um, very close by, like like blasts or directly blast craters. Yeah, blast craters close by it, and, and then directly out of the top of them sort of thing. Mm. So once again, the Stuka was coming into its own, taking out these big heavy tanks sort of thing. And of course, Blitzkrieg mm. being what it is, it's quite oh. effective. Luftwaffe was mm. formidable. I, I've just finished reading a book on uh, Crete, on our, our boys in yep, Crete. Yep. Um, yeah, there's another whole that thing was, we could... That, 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 that was, was a mess, wasn't it? Oh, <laughs> Greece and then Crete. But they, they spoke about the actual um, the Luftwaffe coming in and, and yep. just and just tearing them up and there was there was men there that had been in the first war and they said they'd never been in a bombardment like that mm. the intensity of that bombardment and I can only assume that that's what and the accuracy oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean there was wasn't just wasn't just Stukas it was was some medium like medium, medium bombers and you know Dorniers and things like mm. that so they were actually coming across and, and and dropping full full sticks of bombs on them yep so and I'm guessing the same thing I know they, yep. they only talk about Stukas but that would have, would have been that would have been only part of it. Mm. Well, they were the party trick, weren't they, for taking out heavy vehicles? I mean, the Stuka was, you know, until the Battle of Britain, they they reigned supreme. Like there was nothing out there. Like the French didn't no, have no. air superiority or anything like that. So the Stukas could pretty well operate at will at that stage of the game. I mean, the French the French Air Force was decimated in the first the mm. war, wasn't it? I think they yep. they went in. I mean, that was pretty formidable too. But yep. Who would know? Um, but interestingly enough, more important uh, than the tank's limitations in, in a tactical mobility, um, there were its limitations in strategic mobility. So what that means is the low practical range implied the need to refuel very often. Yep. So all you've got to do is shoot the trucks. Yep. Or just wait them out and they will run out they of fuel. They run out of fuel. Yeah. Oh, battle yeah. of the bulge. Now... <laughs> Like they say that they're 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 fairly quick for their uh, for their size sort of thing. Now, again, I was very surprised when I was looking at the footage for this when I was making up the ad. Um, they really crack on. I mean, they're quite quick. You know, like I would say that they're getting what what's the top speed on them? Because they were, must have been doing over forty, forty k. Doesn't matter. It's all good. Yeah, they just appeared to be very agile for for such a a large vehicle. Yep. <laughs> it's all good. We'll chop that. No, sorry. Top speed, 28 kilometres an hour. 28 kilometres an hour. Mm. That's 30k. On, on, on road, yeah, or yeah. 70 mile an hour. Uh, 21 kilometres an hour off road. So mm. they're far, that's faster than a... Um, well, certainly far, well, so faster than a tilde. The dawn is faster <laughs> than a tilde. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen rocks that move faster than the Matilda, mate. <laughs> <laughs> there's a star, there's a starship one out at um, out at the museum of Bandian. I reckon it's moving faster than the battlefield ones. My three day growth is moving mm. faster than the Matilda. <laughs> yeah, so really, these the Shah B was actually created as the basically infantry support tank, yes. much like the Matilda was. Yes. And it but got a, separated from the infantry. And but at course, least they had they had HE rounds, yep. so they could actually yep. um, shoot. So, which is really interesting. 
I just get the feeling that they were just blindly swatting around and they just couldn't land a blow. And that was, mm. you know, and, and the, the good crews could and they were devastating when they could actually utilise these vehicles as they were designed to be utilised, but they'd never come up against anything like this before. Yeah, no, that's it. The other thing that was a bit of an Achilles heel with this thing was the, um, the one-man turret. Yes. And now, most, most French tanks had them. And like, would you period, like to talk to me about why the one-man turret was such an issue for the Char-B? Well, the commander had to do a couple of things. Right. It was much like some of those other tanks that we've talked about where they only had small turrets. Yep. So, he had, I mean, he had, to, he had to command the tank. He had to, I mean, he had to, I guess... Um, well, according to, according to the information I have in front of me here, um, it's typically seen as one of the greatest flaws of the Shah B. Mm. Um, the commander alone in the turret not only had to command the tank but also had to aim and load the gun. So he was aiming the gun. Yep. He was loading the gun. He was saying, drive over there, yep. look out there, watch that pothole. You know? I assume he was also on radio as well. Well, he? if he was a unit leader... He had to command his other tanks as well. So he was doing all that. Yeah. You couldn't possibly. No. If you're in battle, there's no way. No, you're a busy little bee. Yeah. Yep. Um, it is in contrast with the contemporary German, British, and to a lesser extent, Soviet policy to use two or three man turret crews. So, um, in which these Jews were divided amongst uh, several men. Uh, if, if other nations felt that the commander would otherwise be overtasked and unable to perform any of his roles as well as the commanders of tanks with two or three man turret crews. So it, it didn't make sense. I suppose it was, well, the big reason they did it was cheaper. Mm. And I mean, Charbys wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been cost effective in any way, shape or form. No, not if they blow up. Well, no. <laughs> Yeah. Not if they got boilerplate. Oh, it's only a prototype. Can, can we just talk about that for a sec? It, I was, mean, it was a prototype. Look, it was look, a prototype. I know it was a prototype, but for God's sake, I mean, riveted armor, always a problem. Always a problem. Look, it's like you just got to have a lucky hit on one I'll of stick, those rivets. I'll, I'll put my musician's hat on here for a second. Right, go yeah. for it. Yep. If you're rehearsing a band. You don't rehearse a band that's got people in it that when you go to the gig, you don't have them. Mm. You rehearse the band that you're going to use on the day. Mm. So wouldn't it make more sense to actually test the bloody thing that you're going to run out on the battlefield and shoot at the enemy? It's just you inconceivable. A, inconceivable. But, but to the, me. the problem is you'd need a war to be able to properly test that. Oh, I don't know. Social unrest. Well. <laughs> There's enough social unrest in, in France, wasn't there? Just, Just getting back, back onto on the, the turrets. turrets. Um, whether this left the Shah B less formidable in actual combat than a review of its impressive statistics suggests, it's difficult to ascertain. In 1940, the vast majority of Shah B combat losses were inflicted by German artillery and anti-tank guns. Yep. So in direct meetings with German tanks, the Shah B usually had the better of it. Right. Um, sometimes spectacularly so. Um, so on the 16th of May, a single tank um, frontally attacked and destroyed 13 German tanks lying in ambush mm. in Ston. That would have been a surprise. Oops. Oh, mm. ow. Yes. 
It goes against mine. Got it goes against what is popularly uh, bandied about about the Char B. Doesn't oh, it? Well, just hang on a sec. Of those thirteen tanks, they were all Panzer threes and fours. So that wasn't light tanks. That's wow. Yep. That's something else. Yes, because I was wondering about the um, the Panzer four, but the, at that stage of the game, they were still running with the mm. short barrel fifty millimeter, weren't they? For the most part. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, the short. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, so they were howitzers. Panzer fours. Well, Panzer four had a short seventy five, mm. like the Stug had. They had a short barrel seventy five. Um, that actually happened in the course of a few minutes. Oh, God. A few minutes. Reload. Um, the tank safely returned despite being hit 140 times. <laughs> it's like, a, like, the, right. like the tiger ladder so, in the wall, really. So let's it? just say, as a tank against other tanks in its time period, it was able to do, if handled correctly, it did all right. It would hand out lay spank. Yeah, lay spank, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, for, for its shortcomings, it was still a pretty formidable weapon. Yeah, well, I just think it's... that. Look, the whole French campaign, this is the thing. This is why I want to defend the French a little bit. I just think that they get a rough end of the stick. They were kind of still in World War One mode and all of a sudden they had the Germans running around, buzzing around like flies... And they were just everywhere. You know what I mean? They were just mm. the, the French just couldn't keep up, and they had no idea what was going on. They had better equipment, they had better tanks, you know. And admittedly, some of those tank drivers knew what they were doing, but some didn't. It would have been hard for them. I mean, in the first instance, they're actually um, defending their homeland. Yep. In the second instance, the German Panzer divisions were like downhill with a tailwind, and they were just flat out. Yep. And they they just wouldn't stop. No, no. And there's also, I look, I feel, and this is again in the defence of the French, from the First World War, the French got a pizzling. They got an absolute pizzling. And I, I they knew full well what the Germans could hand out because they took the brunt of it. They were afraid of them. I mean, they, well, they said they weren't, but... Everybody was. Yes. Well, the, the, the Germans, you know, don't come to a fight with, you know, the, the, they don't come to a knife fight with a bloody knife. You know, they they were well and truly prepared and they'd done a great deal of thinking and they good were leadership. the antagonists. Yeah, the good you know. leadership. But they were, I mean, the, the momentum that they had mm. and that was, I mean, you saw what happened when they basically got to, got to Dunkirk and they stopped. Yep. yep. And if the momentum, if they had carried that momentum, right. you, yes. heavens knows what would have happened. Well, that's it. Oh, well, I mean, you, you, if you <laughs> want to play the what-ifs, oh. and, and I have to say, I, I do. And I, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was um, playing out uh, Operation Sea Lion. Um, I've, read the, the, I've read the book. It's right. very interesting. Well, in 1973, I think it was, they still had a lot of the German commanders um, uh, and they game-played it apparently in infinite detail as to what happened in Operation Sea Line and it played out. And the Germans couldn't make it simply because the British Navy was too strong. It, essentially, that was the biggest problem. The, the, essentially, the British pinned them down on the beaches and kept them there and, and they whittled them down from behind when the, mm. the destroyers came in. Because the, the Germans, look, at the end of the day... Sea line was never going to happen because the Germans only had eight destroyers, and this is what a lot of people don't realise. Yeah, it was and, true. And, and when you're in, 
you know, channel area, you can't be lumbering around with dirty, great, big, you know, uh, turpets or, or Bismarck that, style battle, battle, battle cruisers. No, yes. no, they were battle cruisers. They yes. weren't battleships. Well, that's they were, but they they still were lighter, too big. but they were lighter, but they had more um, heavier guns. Yeah, they were still too big. Yeah, they were still too big for for that kind of um, thing. And it was destroyers well, all the way. The, the key was cruisers. the key was the Luftwaffe. Yeah, I mean if if I mean we if, are if you right. I mean if you've read the if you've read the Battle of Britain. <laughs> You could actually say that they were about a week away from winning that, and then they they they, they changed target. Well, a German bomber dropped a stick of bombs on London, and then oh, the, well, Allo- the Allies bombed bombed was, Berlin, and then they started bombing it, London. It was and left, more than they that. left all the radar installations and the and the airfields alone. G- Goering made the decision to stop bombing the airfields and then to move his targets over to yeah, but uh, it was as on, it was only after they bombed Berlin, so. Anyway, from that era, we digress. From, from we digress. The, well, we can't. We shouldn't. We well, shouldn't. this is what World War Two is all about, isn't it? It's just one massive digression. <laughs> yeah, but I think we can probably try and wrap this up a little bit all if right. we can. Yep. Um, so, after nineteen forty, the Shabus were actually used by um, a number of other people, mainly the Germans. Mainly the Germans. Um, the um, I think the the French used them again in about forty four. Right. And I believe the Italians. Captured eight of them and used them. Where did they use them? Did you I don't know. Maybe they were making pizza with them. Maybe they were shooting Australians with them. I doubt it. I doubt <laughs> it. They'll probably use them. I guess they used them on the Russian front because they were over there. Maybe, maybe. Imagine what a Charby, a Charby against early war Russian tanks like the T twenty eight. Now that would it'd be interesting. That would be an interesting battle. Yeah, that would be interesting because a forty-seven millimeter would probably be able to punch through the front of a, a T twenty-eight. I, I don't think I don't think a T thirty-four would have much problem with it. Certainly, the seventy-five millimeter would be able to punch through the front. Well, yeah, but you can't hit what you can't catch. Catch, yes, exactly. So a T thirty-four would definitely roll it up. A KV one, well, yeah, I don't well, want to think about that. Just bounce, bang. Well, hello. <laughs> Anyway, but the Germans used them um, after capture. They captured them. I think they they were actually a little bit. They liked them. They didn't think they were too bad. Yeah. I know they pulled the turrets off them. A fair few of them. And they yeah. inst- installed them into the Atlantic Wall. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. The, that's all they were good for. Yeah. But the um, sixty of them, they used them as um, platforms for flamethrower tanks. So flame panzers. <laughs> That's that would be so nasty. I mean, I know, I know that the Churchill crocodiles, the, the crews of those were hated, hated by the Germans. You've got to think about those things rolling up and just shooting napalm at you, like just ordinary, mm. ordinary. Um, so there's about sixty of those. Um, they used a few for training. Um, what else did they use? Oh, they used them for um, self-propelled guns. So they actually they actually put um, uh, 105 howitzers on them. And used them as um, self-propelled guns, which right. would have been a, a really reasonably interesting thing. And of course, they were also the, the, the basis for the ARL. Yes, mm. I've always said. I think they just bought out the uh, turret ring to make it larger, and, mm. and away they went. Yeah, yeah. So oh, there you go. Italy independently from Germany captured eight um, Shah B ones uh, when in October 1940, an Italian worker disclosed to the Italian Armistice Commission that they'd been hidden in a cave. So they didn't actually take them off the French, they pinched them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. These vehicles, six of which lacked the turret, were tested, but probably not used operationally. Either. 
So there you go. I'm not saying a word. You don't need to. <laughs> Wouldn't move fast enough. All so, right. Well, let's. That's the char B one. But a, a really good weapon. Yep. But has its shortcomings. But yep. um, on balance, if used correctly, would yeah. smack. Would uh, lay spank. Mm, lay spank. I like that. I'm, yeah. Yes. So uh, next week. Yes. Next what we, week. What have we got? We're doing the uh, Lee Stroke Grant. Ooh. So, so that, that should be very interesting. Together. Okay. Well, they're the same thing. Yes. I find it interesting that the Americans called him a Lee, which was a Confederate general, yes. and the British called him a Grant, which was a Union general. Well, the British have a sense of humour. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Okay, guys. Well, until next week, we shall then – we can pull out the, the Star Spangled Banner. I'll have to go and find that somewhere uh, now. Yeah. Well, I think we'll do that with the music for the, the tanks. I, I quite oh, okay. like that. I, yeah. yeah, it's corny enough that yeah. everybody oh. enjoys it. When I, when I it's stop it's almost like um, – Barracking for your favourite football team, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit. <laughs> anyway. All right. It's goodbye from me. And au revoir from him. <laughs>